0: I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch says, enough of the boogie. What do you say? Let's get yakin.
1: Is that even in the movie? He
0: says, "Enough of the yakin. What do you say? Let's let's boogie."
1: I I I. It's like a famous line from the movie. That's the most famous line from This Is Final
0: Tap. I didn't say it was the most famous. I said it's a famous.
1: I do. I do think that you have a new game that you're playing with. If you can pick the most esoteric reference on the intros.
0: Yeah, it used to be. Can I come up with something dirty? Yeah. <clears throat> and that was kind of the point because we love to watch it's supposed to be we're supposed to be filthy it's little, little it's a little warriors. seedy yeah um seedy little creeps um one of the original logo ideas i had was a set of blinds with our eyes poking out of it like blue velvet
1: yeah i um, but but of course the um set of the eyes is just like the one eye of a dick <laughs> make yeah it the re- one, eye, make one it eye really seedy
0: the one eye purple peter eater <laughs> what Well, hold on. Peter's already a euphemism for penis. I think we can rework this a little bit.
1: Yeah, a a Peter, Peter
0: eater. (laughs) One-eyed purple Peter. Yeah. End of question.
1: Peter. Uh well we are we love to watch i guess uh our movie podcast I'm gonna we pick you a theme do with more confidence we've been doing it for like yeah, 5 years. I was a little yeah a little little uh lack the the enthusiasm to say the name after that. Gretchen. Uh, <laughs> uh but I'm going with it. Yeah, we love to watch our movie podcast pick a theme do movies over the course of that month around that theme. Uh we just wrapped up our spooktober extravaganza that we do for october so if you're looking for our recap episode it's uh, either been posted or about to be posted that'll be in its separate space um we had amazing spooktober probably uh <laughs> we, we, we yeah
0: uh i like to imagine how many how many movies did you end up watching
1: uh 40
0: billion. Oh, nice dude nice so you watched more movies than there is time in the month did or you have like that a big existed. TV setup, like the guy from, uh, like that uh, Jack Nicholson from uh, from uh, Witches of Eastwick.
1: Uh, I haven't seen that. Maybe I saw it last month. <laughs> uh, the guy the Mar-
0: not the Merovigian, uh, the architect from. It's funny. Matrix?
1: Yeah, no, I watched four Which billion comes out movies. Out next month, Matrix Four. I, I I watched four forty billion movies or whatever I said. I missed those two. I've never seen The Matrix Revolutions, or, or uh, and I've never seen The Witches of Eastwick. Those are the two. Uh, I'll get to them. Maybe next October. But no, we've left that behind, and as our is our tradition, we really are trying to change up a little bit the, the spooky genre and go with something a little lighter- uh, a little more fun. And, you know, in the past couple of years, a lot of times that's meant like kid-friendly stuff, like nostalgia audits, watching. Uh, last year, we did that Disney live action stuff and did stuff like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and stuff like that. And we had a few different ideas for, for months this month. And I think it came down to like, what would I really want to rewatch right now? And and I And that landed us on this one, which is Be Our Guest Month, where we are going through the mockumentaries of one Christopher Guest. Uh, and we're starting today with This is Spinal Tap, which is a movie that he wrote and starred in, but didn't direct and then we will be moving on to the obvious next three. This is one where there's not not, not many secrets or surprises. I think people would just be annoyed if we're like, hey, we're going to skip Best in Show for some time down the road. And we're going to do Mascots and the Family Tree instead. Uh, no, not really any surprises. We're going to do Best in Show. or sorry, Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, and then A Mighty Wind. And it's going to be amazing because all those movies, spoiler alert, Peter, are very funny and very fun to
2: watch.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, we, <laughs> there's actually, it's a, it's a slightly bigger genre than, uh, you might think, because these four movies that we're covering are the ones that are actually beloved, and, you know, we're, like, comedy central staples at different times, you know, um, so, like, people have seen them a lot, like, I've seen Best in Show, uh, a, a zillion times, I've seen Spinal Tap a half a zillion times, um, but, uh, I was gonna say it's, mascots uh was left out this month uh and which i I think is an okay movie it's a movie that's kind of like loathed by some people um i don't exactly know why because i think it's like pretty charming just not quite all there. yeah it's
1: not as funny but it's still funny
0: I it know. does kind of feel like edited scenes, scenes that were edited out of the other movies, right? Like jokes a little bit quite quite there because that's the thing about all these movies Um, not to jump not to jump the gun. But that's the thing about all these movies is they famously because they're improv based. They shoot like over 100 hours of just fucking around with very, very talented improv comedians. And then they whittle it down to something watchable.
1: Yeah. And plots emerge. And, you know, it's like uh, I. There's, I've read Christopher Guest and seen some of the special features on Best in Show a while ago, where it's like, it's it's kind of like the Kirby enthusiasm model to some extent, right? Like you need to hit these beats so that we have a plot to drive, but they actually get like more, um, you know, uh, they get more uh, uh, extemporaneous as the movies go on because you have a lot more talking head sections. Spinal Tap, uh, you know, there's a lot of changes between. Uh, even though they're still in the mockumentary style, there's a lot of changes between the way that this is Spinal Tap shoots its mockumentary and the way that the Guffman movie or the the guest movies ultimately shoot their mockumentary, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, the guest movies are really the template for the modern Office and Parks and Recreation, where it's like it's talking heads um, without a, a particular like point of view. Uh, uh, Director or narrator telling the story, where this movie is much different. You know, a Marty DeBerge is uh, is is a very active part in telling the story, and interviewing them, and interacting, and uh, and so it leads to a different kind of stylistic mockumentary than where we're going to end later. There's a few other things that watching it back with a kind of the critical lens of like knowing where we're going in the next three movies that you really realize how how different. Some of the choices that like Reiner and and the writers of this movie, who are all the performers, <laughs> made, and and the way that Christopher Guest decided to structure his like uh, mockumentaries, mockumentaries later on. But I do think we should start a little bit even before this. So uh, we're going to talk about this more in Best in Show. But actually, I think it makes a little bit of sense to make to start here because if we start talking about it, I think at Best in Show we're three movies into this and. Uh, you know, we're we're discovering this this stylistic way to do a comedy way later than than a lot of people, right? Because so, Best in Show was the first like mockumentary style comedy I'd ever seen. I saw it when it came out in two thousand. It blew my 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 fucking mind. I had never seen a fake doc like a, a like a comedy structured as a fake documentary before. Um, and the fact that Best in Show, I think, will probably land on this at the end of this as well, like, is the funniest of all those. <laughs> um, It was just like, why don't more movies do this? Like, it, it felt like I had, like, uh, you know, tapped, like, a vein of gold or some, like, hat to change your life or something where upon seeing this, I was like, why is, like, 50% of comedies not shot in this style? Like, the... The way they're able to tell their jokes, the way they're able to deliver them to directly to the camera and everything else, it really felt like I was just discovering a whole new world.
0: And um, this sort of long, long like improv is famously like ninety five percent bad. Um, I have a lot of cr- very cringe experiences of seeing improv troops uh, when I was in college uh, before I knew better. Um,
1: let's but, um, can you can we describe it a little bit? But let's let's walk through a scene. Let's pretend you're someone. <laughs> Who thinks improv is bad? And yeah. I'll be Jay Leno who doesn't agree with you.
0: <laughs> so this is more. This is is this a short form, or are we trying to do a long form?
1: No, I just want to like you know. I sometimes I think people exp- like.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. Let's yeah, let's do let's do it really quickly. Yeah. Um. So I went in the cafeteria and they were doing improv, Jay, and it was it was oh miserable.
2: This is gonna be the first time I heard about
0: this. Jay, you've never heard of improv before?
2: No. Tell me about it. Let maybe hear about it. Tell me about it.
0: Alright, so uh a bunch of uh attention seeking uh nineteen year olds.
2: Oh, it yeah. sounds like me when I was nineteen. I had the cars and I drove around with my leather jacket and I said, Woohoo! I'm Jay Leno. I'm gonna be the richest man in the world, but never touch it.
0: Wait, so you had cars at nineteen, but you said you're gonna be the richest man in the world later.
2: I say it all the time. <laughs> I never I never stop saying it. That's the thing. But I always tell people I'm going to be the richest man in the world. And no one can have my money, not even me.
0: Yeah. I'm, Jay, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So it's your money. You can have it.
2: The Bible didn't say want. anything about hoarding wealth, did it? <laughs> speaking so of which i'm never having kids so so jay, my jay, dirty kids your... don't
0: get the money <laughs> you're you you do not want your kids to have the money i'm just, are, are just never
2: gonna have team? it so they can't get the money i don't trust lawyers when i'm dead i just lawyers. want them to burn it <laughs> burn it like the joker
0: <laughs> <laughs> is it about sending a message jay
2: <laughs> yeah this uh, this town ain't big enough for more than one talk show host
0: <laughs> which town are you operating from right now the
2: world
0: the w- world town
2: the whole world, world Peter,
0: Town, World Town, isn't that a? Um,
2: Back me a, up, a, Kevin.
0: I like got black, like a black market.
2: Back me up, Kevin. Dark
0: web. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> that that's an example of why that, improv is generally not good. Uh yeah. Um.
0: So the point, the point there, yeah, is that improv is is usually not great. Uh but this is super super inspirational to. A generation of comedy people um an important distinction here comedy people that both do improv now like the scott ackermans of the world uh, but it's also to people who don't do improv they do scripted drama or is sorry their work that we know of is is scripted drama i'm sure they all did improv uh when they were coming up um but uh it has the feel and the vibe and the aesthetic of an improvised sort of live mockumentary scene. So like um, comedy bang bang uh, is obviously like long form improv, a ridiculous character committing to the character, but trying to stay in the scene, ask actual questions, respond to each other. Like the, the, the yes and principle. Mm. However, um, like the people who wrote The Office, many of them have cited like, oh yeah, the Spinal Tap Christopher Guest era is like super influential and you can feel that sort of mockumentary style in both um, the original Ricky Gervais uh, show, but even more so, I think, in The American Office, um, which uh, uh, was far more, far more, uh, has far more of an improvised feel, even though both shows were scripted. Yeah, well, scripted out of them. Even though they have like like uh, writers acting in the show, yeah, uh, the writers don't uh, just riff on camera. The writers are writing, and if they're not in the the episode, um, they get to write. If they're in the episode, they're not even writing themselves.
1: Well, and yeah, you almost have this thing that happened where when I saw Best in Show in 2000, it felt like something I'd never seen before, and then. Ten years later, it seemed like the most overused, lazy way to tell a story, right? Like, you didn't just have, like, The Office and the uh, Parks and Recreation stuff and all the other types of shows that just, like – that That NBC block for a while was just, like, shows in the mockumentary format. But then you had stuff like Modern Family, too, which is just, like, more of a traditional sitcom that I don't, I don't think people think of as, like, a mockumentary style, but it is. It has all of them as talking heads and families – being interviewed and stuff like that. And, you know, one of, and then, and then you almost have a backlash to how common it was uh, in that, like, I you know, community I remember was really like, we are doing, you know, single camera back to the, you know, back to basics. And, you know, they had their mockumentary episode, which also kind of made fun of some of the tropes, but that's just a, you know, for, a, for, a, for a comedy, for a genre or a comedy genre, that had actually been around for a long time. It's kind of insane how influential those, you know, the best in show and the mighty winds were to kind of defining what sitcoms to this day still kind of look like. Like, those clearly don't exist without without the Christopher Guest movies. I would say even more than Spinal Tap. And so Spinal Tap's a really good example. If I see Best in Show and I start going, you know, go head to IMDB in the year in the year of our Lord two I'm like. Like are there any other movies that this guy's made that or that 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 match this and and that's where I find um this is Spinal tap, a movie that I had always assumed was uh... <laughs> Was about a rock band. I I did not know. I thought it was about a real heavy metal band. I you know I only knew it from like the covers and the pictures of the band that I would occasionally see like in posters and in record stores or movie rental stores or something like that. Like I didn't know that that was this, uh, and that he had made another movie uh, right before a couple years before this called called Waiting for Government. And it really wasn't even until years after that that I found out like that that Spinal Tap wasn't even the first wasn't even the first fake music band mockumentary right like uh they have all you need is cash the ruttles the beatles uh parody that was shot in a mockumentary format and then my uh probably my favorite albert brooks or second favorite albert brooks movie uh real life is kind of shot in the same style as well so it's interesting that like in real life i feel like has been Kind of, with the exception of like film nerds and Albert Brooks nerds and comedy nerds, has kind of been forgotten. I think I think if you ask most people who are generally familiar with film, like what the first comedy mockumentary would be, I think they would say they would say Spinal Tap. But Spinal Tap is really taking the Albert Brooks real life uh, uh, template and and turning it on music.
0: Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And uh, it's important to also note that this is sort of a. This is a Rob Reiner movie. I think that this gets, um, even though Rob Reiner kicks off the movie with his monologue, which is where I took the title from, the title of this episode uh, from, and then uh, he's an active part of the movie. um, And he was an active part of the TV show, which was a uh, scripted, uh, you know, sorry, a part scripted, part improv uh, television project that he uh, worked on with these guys, um, where this these characters were introduced um rob reiner and that show didn't get picked up right that's yeah, like yeah, yeah. a little bit before it, it's sort two. of a comedy legend pilot thing yeah. like where people remember that even though it wasn't like a, a long running uh thing it was just an episode um but uh he rob reiner was on a role like Right well, this was this, his ro- like this like uh, right after uh, this, he was on a roll. Like, sure, he had the Sure Thing, which is a movie nobody remembers. But it
1: so the sh- hold on, hold on, the Sure Thing is fucking great, Peter. Don't knock the Sure Thing.
0: The Sure Thing is a movie that I have never heard of until this week. Oh, really? Like, <laughs> sure oh thing, no, it's not really. It's not really well. Re- it, sorry, it's not not well reviewed. It's not commonly reviewed on a lot of the platforms
1: so I see. think part of that is it never made its leap past DVD for some reason and I say that as someone who uh, I recently rewatched Better Off Dead and was like I gotta rewatch some of those other Cusack movies that I watched in high school that I loved and I found out basically I, I do have a sure thing DVD somewhere like in storage that I bought and I guess it never made the leap so you can't get it digitally the blu-ray doesn't exist and so like it was one of those so I think that's part of the problem, but the sure thing is like, uh, it's basically, I would say the, you know, in the, my top three Cusack eighties movies are better off, better off dead. Um, say anything and, and the sure thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't seen it. I just saw like certain reviewers were kind of middling on it, but like, if you ignore that as sort of like a movie, a eighties a comedy with a cult appeal, it sounds like, um, it's, this is spinal tap, the sure thing. Then, just mega hits. Yeah. Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, and then that stops dead with North. <laughs> and never recovers. But like, yeah, what I was gonna say is, uh, I think like the American president made some money, Ghost of Mississippi made some money. But after that, it's just like, it's it's nothing. It's 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 just him kind of like his, his back was broken in a sense. And I don't know if we've ever like, I don't know if, if film nerds have ever cracked quite why at north broke rob reiner so much yeah but this was sort of his announcement as a i can do fucking anything director and then he proceeded to prove it with uh one with of the best like life affirming movies which is stand by me yeah princess bride which is like one of the best like fantasy comedies ever made if, you, if you're looking for a movie that like parodies uh fantasy movies while also is a good movie like yeah I'm not sure there is one other than Princess Bride. No,
1: I mean like I mean like Best in Show and like discovering like Mr. Science Three Thousand and Monty Python. Seeing the Princess Bride for the first time was like was just like broke my brain from what I yeah. understood that movies could do. I think I think it's why that it tends to be kind of in like an apocalypse movie for people that like oh. I didn't know that, like, when you watch a labyrinth or, like, other 80s fantasy movies that, you know, create wonderful worlds and have fun special effects and stuff like that. Like, a movie that's constantly, like, anachronistic and breaking the fourth wall and telling stories in this, like, unreliable narrator way while you're watching it in the movie and stuff like that. I was just like, <laughs> you know, uh, I was like fucking uh, Tim Robinson in the the hot dog sketch of... Uh, I don't you know I think you should leave when they cancel lunch like I don't think you can do that <laughs> because it, it's like and it reminds me of a best in show in that way and that like as you're watching it you're kind of like well if you can do this. Why aren't more people doing this?
0: Yeah, like because it, it it like allowed the movie to have this lively, wild energy, whereas like so many of the fantasy movies of that era, particularly ones that tried to be funny, which were just fucking mostly miserable.
1: I, I so finally got around
2: have to have Dragon Slayer, like dead, and
0: Dead yeah, dead like. Fucking corpse-like energy, and they're yeah. just ch- like even ones I like, like Legend. Like Legend is a gorgeous movie we <sighs> talked about on that we we covered it on the show, but it is a like slow, like very cumbersome at times movie. Same with like Willow, like that sort of Wh- uh, Will- Willow, Lady Hawk. Lady Hawk. <laughs> like all of them yeah. have this sort of like very like but like draggy, uh, corpse-like yeah. sort of uh, languid pacing. Um, that like Princess Bride was like well why do we have to do that
1: yeah why don't we keep people entertained why don't we we allow jokes to occur like we don't have to be so serious i mean these movies are ostensibly for families with children right yeah um yeah i i I disagree with you on legend only because i just rewatched it as well and i fucking love that movie i don't think it's a bad movie but i think it it has it's it's doing something it has pacing problems um But I agree with you, like, it's insane that he did, so yeah, he does Princess Bride, a Stand By Me, does the sure thing. Um, He does When Harry Met Sally, which you just watched for the first time, right,
0: Peter? I did, and that's where I'm going, because Misery is obviously, like, an amazing horror thriller, but, but, like... You know, that that's not really pertinent to this discussion today because, you know, it, it made him Rob Reiner. It, it sort of proved that Rob Reiner could do fucking anything. But when Harry met Sally is the point I want to talk about, because when Harry met Sally, I never seen him before. And I didn't know that the movie is flanked by. um, With no explanation a uh, couple speaking to the camera telling their meet cute story telling their story of how they met and then the movie obviously ends with with um billy crystal and meg Ryan telling their meet cute because at the end you know everything uh worked out and that sort of like sp- speaking to the camera in a sort of documentary fashion uh as a way to like intercut and kind of push your movie forward thematically is something that feels like that was him getting experimental in the way he did with This is Spinal Tap and certainly with Princess.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, he, he I don't think, I think there's a lot of directors that you could say, like a Cameron Crowe or a, um um, 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 um,
2: um, um, who did as good as it gets?
1: Why am I forgetting something? Uh, Albert, uh, not Albert Brooks, James L. Brooks, who, like, like hit a wall somewhere creatively and then like never made another good movie but even Cameron Crowe like I'm pretty middling on singles even post his almost famous work um and um uh James L. Brooks has that one weird Nick, Nick Nolte movie in the middle there in his early work too that's just you know complete garbage uh uh, I forgot. What, like this is anything, or it's terrible. It Do- doesn't even matter. But uh, I hope that's
0: the title.
1: <laughs> what, this, is this is anything? This <laughs>
0: is, is it, anything. Is this
2: anything? <laughs> is, this, is this something? Is this something? Do I have something going on? It
1: is. It is something like that. Like, but you know, that had kind of those like almost like warning signs that that something uh, something may be off. Like. Oh, and then they, you know, would follow it up with something better, like after a broadcast. You know, does broadcast news, does all those things, and then, um, but there, we're gonna find out what this is right now. I'll do anything. I'm pretty close. I'll do anything. Yeah, I mean, th- that is one of the like. That's a fake. Um, uh, that's a fake. That, that reminds me of like California where they make that movie where he's like, and then. God hates us all was turned into the movie uh uh crazy little thing called love and, and like I'll do anything Rob, Rob Reiner, by the way, has a movie you've never heard of that it sounds exactly like that too, called like so it goes um that came out in twenty fifteen I guess, but like there were warning for some of those people
0: so, that just hit so it goes yeah it's rob that's rob reiner pitching the movie live he's improvising the, the, the plot of the movie live hold on hold on it's got diane keaton michael douglas yeah, michael douglas and it, hold on a self-absorbed realtor enlists the help of his neighbor when he's suddenly left in charge of a granddaughter he never knew existed until his estranged son drops her off at his home and it's called and so it goes that is rob reiner in a pitch meeting where someone's like yeah, we should take a meeting with Rob, and he clearly hasn't prepared. And he's just like, so there's a there's a realtor, you know, he sells houses. Uh, I don't know Diane adults, King. She still takes my calls. Yeah, and he's he sells houses, but he's got to sell a home to himself by taking care of his granddaughter.
2: Do
1: you think at the end of the goes uh, the s in the in the word goes he wrote a dollar sign to <laughs> dollars? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, I don't think so, Rob. But we'll you five
2: million, I guess.
1: <laughs> but like, that's what I mean. Like, there were on some of those 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 directors, and there's tons of examples of this that kind of had hit after hit. Um, you know, there, even when they were working in very similar genres consistently, there were some warning signs that the ship was going to fall apart. And the weird thing about Rob Reiner is that not only were there no warning signs, that he basically made like. I would, I would posit to say, like, essentially five-star movies for ten straight years. Maybe I'd give The Sure Thing, like, four, four and a half if there was any way I could rewatch it easily. Um, but he basically made, like, even A Few Good Men is not like a movie I rewatch all the time. But that's a fucking expert. Like, that is all those courtroom dramas that followed in the 90s that were fucking terrible. Like, that's the good one that they kept trying to repeat, right? Um, and so, like, he essentially operated in all these different genres. He made, like, some fucking terrifying movies in Misery, like, some of the better romantic comedies of all time. And, you know, When Harry Met Sally in The Sure Thing. It's made funny fucking...
0: to think he was the Stephen King guy and the rom-com guy. Yeah.
1: Like, he, he he was hitting everything out of the park for ten years, and then he makes North, which I, I saw when it came out. I was so excited about it because it had a bunch of uh, uh, mu- uh, movie stars that I was aware of, like Jason Alexander and Bruce Willis. And they were in movies that I could see, which was a change of pace. And it was this concept that, like, really appeals to a 10-year-old. Like, what if you can change your parents out <laughs> and get better parents? And I remember being fucking just miserable watching this movie. It's a movie that became super famous for um, for uh, uh, the the Roger Ebert opening line of the review where he's like, I hated, 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 hated this movie, uh, which became, like, uh, the name of, of Roger Ebert's series of books about, like, you know, his zero-star reviews that he would like compile each year and publish. Um yeah, and then uh American President is fine. Ghost of the Mississippi is uh fine.
0: It's very uh, much like uh white neoliberal makes a movie about uh civil rights. It's like it's like a movie that kind of doesn't have Like, I'm not even saying it had a value in the 90s, but I'm saying, like, it it, it, uh, doesn't have any particular cultural relevance anymore, despite the themes being really relevant, because the conversations that's happening are just so ancient.
1: Yeah, and it's, I mean, yeah, it's directed by, like, white liberal, right? Like, it's, you know. There's some really
0: good performances in it.
1: Gene Hackman's great? Yeah. Great great performances in it. I'm going to say that, like, American President, Ghost of Mississippi are three, three and a half star movies. So, like, it's not like he, he stays on the North trajectory forever, right? But he. And those are
0: ambitious movies. The American President and Burning Miss- Mississippi are spaces that he's never operated in before, like, like making outright political, uh, an outright, supposedly, an outright political movie. It ends up just being, like, a kind of, like, a, a hoity toity rom com. Um, and yeah. then, uh, Ghost of Mississippi is, like, a civil rights drama. And it's, like, it's Rob Reiner very much, like, for the first time in his in his uh movie career um being very political
1: yeah um and also uh gene hackman is not in ghost in the mississippi he's in mississippi burning which is a much better movie <laughs> i maybe have seen mississippi burning uh yeah i just i i was thinking mississippi burning and uh, i have not seen. I've not seen Ghost of the Mississippi, Peter.
0: Maybe, just, um, maybe we just edit out us talking about Ghost of the Mississippi because I can't genuinely tell you which one. I've
1: seen. I, uh, I, Let's I definitely. Hold on. I've definitely seen Mississippi Burning. I've definitely not seen a movie uh, called Ghost of the Mississippi that stars Alec Baldwin, Whoopi Goldberg, James Woods, and Craig T. Nelson. P.S. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> if you're writing, not. hold on, a uh, 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 civil rights uh, drama. <laughs> That stars James Wood and Craig T. Nelson doesn't hold up well today.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. 100% haven't seen that movie. Maybe we we cut out us talking about it. I don't know. We'll see.
1: Or we think it's funny that we confuse Mississippi (laughs) with Ghost in Mississippi.
0: (laughs) I was thinking of Mississippi burning also. That's why you said Gene Hackman. I was like, Gene Hackman's great in that movie. Yeah, in that, that movie. Great performance. Yeah,
1: like, yeah, well I, I should have quizzed you more. Like, really? Which would you like better? James Woods' performance or Craig T. Nelson's performance? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so he does the American President, which is which is somewhat of a rebound in that it's an okay three-star, three and a half star movie that uh is more famous for inspiring a very popular television show. Not inspiring, but like, because uh, the same guy wrote it. The same yeah, guy yeah, yeah. being uh, someone, why, why am I forgetting his name? I think because I, I purposely tried to block Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> he has my own name, and I've tried to block it out of my head, because he's so bad. Um, but yeah, Aaron Sorkin wrote The American President, which obviously then he essentially kind of quasi-adapted into the West Wing. Uh, Ghost of Mississippi, which I've not seen, which is apparently terrible, Um Story of Us, which I have seen, which is so fucking bad. Uh, that is a movie that I, I think only was mildly successful because it was Bruce Willis's next movie that came out right after Sixth Sense where people were in Willis fever. Um, it's terrible. I have not seen Alex Nemo, Rumor Has It, or The Bucket List. I remember The Bucket List being a movie that was extremely successful that every criticated. Um, Rumor Has yeah, It was- it's,
0: it's, it's, it's a easy pitch, right? Jack yeah. Nicholson and Morgan Freeman uh, fuck around and do fun things for a while, but it turns out that it does not make a good movie.
1: Yeah, but he almost transitions to like the kind of like three star late nineties, early two thousand like forgettable movies that in no way match the type of movies that he had made before that. And, like, nothing is rising. Like, at best, you're getting a three-star movie with some good performances. You're not getting, like, these masterpieces. And then you, like, after The Bucket List, which, again, very successful movie, you just go into movies that, like, if if you say you've heard of it or watched it, you're lying or you did a podcast about the works of Rob Ryan. Because after The Bucket List, he's done, like – As many movies as he did between Spinal Tap and North. And Peter, I've never heard of any of these. I've never heard of Flipped. Which I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this list also. I've never seen The Magic of Belle Isle at a time when Robert Reiner could sell some movies. Never. Fucking never heard of that. And so it goes. We already made our jokes about. Never heard of Bean Charlie. I've never heard of – like they made a movie about LBJ directed by Rob Reiner. Never heard of that. Um, Yeah. Yeah,
0: that sounds like – Woody Harrelson plays LBJ. Never. Yeah. That sounds like a nice three-star
2: movie.
1: Yeah, never heard of it. Uh, And then Shock and Awe – Starring, once again, Woody Woody Harrelson became his late, late, late career uh, muse. Oh, my God. Look, I need you to look at the poster of Shock and Awe. This came out the year after Trump was, or two years after Trump was elected, and and tell me this is probably the worst movie you'd ever watch in your entire life.
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) Rob Reiner, whoever does your marketing, fire them.
1: (laughs) First of of all, he he put himself, yeah, I know, over the White House, two years after Trump, he put himself second Build. So it goes Woody Harrelson, Rob Reiner, uh, uh, James Mardson. Which, Rob Reiner, you can be above James Mardson. I question whether you should be above Tommy Lee Jones.
0: Yeah, I... um oh, Mila Jovovich is in it. We love to watch not favorite. Um, yeah, I
1: Biel? <laughs> I think that... Um... What happened, Rob? Like, I, I I, really don't think there is a career that is hit, hit, hit. Like, critically, audience, like, it's basically classic after classic. The kind of movie that, like, you line up to show friends or children or whatever else. And then he just literally was like, what if, because you guys made fun of my movie North, I never make another good movie again? And that's, like, I guess Rob Reiner, the best thing can say about him, he's stubborn. Like, the warmest feelings I have for him over the last... Twenty-five years or thirty—is that thirty years? That's a long time. Whatever that is, is his uh, his guest spot as Jessica's dad on the uh, New Girl.
0: Yeah, yeah, because that was like uh, reminding us that he is like a very gifted little comic performer um, when he, and especially when he's not writing his own material.
1: Clearly, but I mean, there's not that much of. I mean, the guy gave us like again six or seven of the best movies of all time in their in their genres. I'm not trying to judge him too harshly for then, oh, you only gave us seven of the best movies of all time? Like, "Mm." But it is weird, like, how fast and consistent the quality dip happened as he made 20 more movies. And I I would love – I'd love to hear, like, some sort of, like, fucking serial podcast about, like, trying to piece together what happened. Because there's got to be something that, like – you don't go from just making like a producer that switched something that happened in his personal life, or like, like how do you go from doing doing fucking Spinal Tap to Alex and Emma? Uh, yeah, I think we've both covered why uh, a this movie is um uh, is, is 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 definitely something that has stayed in the like it stayed in the public consciousness It was a bigger hit. I, I guess a bigger hit on video. It actually wasn't that big of a hit on. Uh, in theaters, because everyone assumed, like me, because of the thing they were parroting, kind of like middling heavy metal bands were like everywhere, right? Like, the that kind of stayed that way for the 80s. That actually, like, most people assumed, and because it's so like subtle in the way that it's it like slowly starts sending it up, uh, the opening song, the interviews on the street, like. If I had if I had watched this uh, and not known that it was a mockumentary, it may have taken me a little bit to figure out something might be off. And apparently, the, you know, that was the reaction to people at the time too. And it wasn't until later on, as like bands really started embracing it and became a shorthand, and then you know came out on video and stuff like that, that it really kind of found a. You know, at this point, this saying that this is Spinal Tap has a cult following just seems off. But you know, at the time, it was. It was a movie that did. Not that great in theaters, found its audience on video, and it helped that its audience also just was ended up being tons of famous people who watched it and had a lot of self recognition. And some bands, you know, found, you know, uh, The Edge, uh, U2's guitarist famously said that, like, he didn't. He didn't watch this movie and laughed like he watched it and cried, and you know, and like the guy from Judas Priest who um, helped inspire specifically what Spinal Tap would be like. Judas uh, Rob Reiner went to some Judas Priest concerts to kind of get a sense of like what's a mediocre heavy metal band that I can take things from. He was very like honest, like he was watching himself on stage, and and other heavy metal bands were like assumed that they had literally followed them around and made a movie out of their life because. Uh, what they were parroting so this this movie especially in the 80s had a you know had a lot of people who i think rock stars like bruce springsteen and some other people who would talk about this as like thought it was the height of hilarity like thought it was funny and then you had a subset of it's them. a tour that, bus classic right? yeah and then you had a subset of them too that were like legitimately like uh who's the who's the uh Dave Mustaine was a really good example someone who was like a huge booster showed it to everyone um and was like uh, was like oh yeah this is this is like this is the misfits this is uh, you know, this is what it's like uh, being with, uh, with, uh, you know, early era Metallica and stuff like that. Oh yeah.
0: Dan- Glenn Danzig also was like, Oh, sorry. Danzig was, said that. Yeah, Danzig. Glenn, yeah. Glenn Danzig. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's a movie that uh, also almost didn't happen, but was allowed to happen because of Rob Reiner and his connection to Norman Lear. So yep. they pitched this all around. Nobody wanted to bite it. And it is like, like we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, like, The concept of a mockumentary is so basic now as to possibly overpower single-camera sitcoms, depending on what era you're watching. Uh, But at the time, this was a very experimental concept. It was also very hard to pitch because um, uh, they were like, okay, bring us a script. And they're like, well, it's an unscripted movie. And they're like, well, what do we paying you
1: money for. yeah so, they, so they, they, they they spent sixty thousand dollars and like did a few of the scenes that are in the movie yeah
0: right? they did like a, it's essentially like a proof of concept right like here's what's gonna which you know sometimes happens with like animation houses and stuff but like the idea of a mockumentary comedy movie needing to prove that is 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 a little crazy i think that nowadays they'd probably just come up with like the bone probably get like a
1: five season deal on abc <laughs> yes night. yes um but yeah, it, well, Norman but Nor Lear, and Norman why Lear, did he have a connection uh, is, to Norman Lear, though?
0: His, yeah, Rob Reiner, Rob Reiner's connection from All in the Family, and you know, just like working in, in TV in the seventies, um, got him, uh, you know, a, uh, got him his meeting and got him a connection. Norman Lear was he trusted this kid, um, yeah. and though this movie didn't end up making a lot of money, like it's a it, beloved, it has. <laughs> beloved movie
1: so much that Harry Shearer sued for like one hundred seventy five million dollars. <laughs> by believing they were never paid for a lot of the stuff that they did uh like in But 20- that guy's destitute. So, yeah, well, he needs how it. how would Harry Shearer have money? Uh, I mean, it's uh, it I'm, sure, defense, I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure some studio screwed someone. So, it's its it defense, they
0: claimed that they made they something along the lines of they each made $185 total for the music in the movie. Yeah which uh, or each i don't remember regardless like a paltry sum each for the music in the movie despite the studio just pushing the music around um yeah
1: i played it on guitar hero 2 i think tonight tonight we're going to rock you on one of those early guitar hero yeah
0: that games. sounds that sounds right um and uh yeah they they sued in 2015 basically to to get their royalties reinstated and get their get get paid back for money that they were supposed to get for this movie and honestly uh yeah totally hollywood uh hollywood accounting yeah. is fucked up and totally fucked um up. you know uh, harry sheer having uh zillions of simpsons dollars uh ready to throw around and being like i'm gonna hire a great entertainment lawyer a great copyright lawyer and we're gonna figure we're gonna go through the paper trail uh what is it 15 plus 30 years later
1: it's pretty good but yeah, so this you know this movie and it was uh, you had already mentioned uh, Mike Michael McKean uh, and Christopher Guest to kind of create these characters for their their pilot the, the the TV show and we're kind of workshopping them. So it is a movie where you know they it feels extremely collaborative, where you have uh, Guest and and, um, and McKean writing most of the songs. The whole movie is kind of written by all four of the main players of this, and you know. You just end up with something really special. Even when you do go look and, like, movies that are mockumentaries, this genre ended up flourishing in the television realm. But there's still not that many movies um, that, that really embrace this formula. And that's why this Spinal Tap, when it kind of gained its cult following, became what, for a lot of people, was kind of the progenitor of this type of comedy. And then even then, you know, it's 14 years later. Till Guest ends up making another one of these with Waiting for Guffman. So we'll talk about all that uh, next week and, like, Guest's uh, Guest's first movie that he tried to make with the big picture, which was um – not a mockumentary, but something that he almost, in some ways, re- retreated from trying to make a Hollywood movie and kind of went back to almost do a, a revitalization of what he had done before. And then that really leads to a mighty wind, which is a perfect bookend for this episode because a mighty wind is the Spinal Tap people doing uh, doing a different band uh, in a different type of movie. And one of the things things I always loved, you know, hearing you know uh, on Spinal Tap tours after uh after a mighty wind uh you you know who opened for him right
0: yeah the folksmen or whatever folksman yeah which is great
1: yeah.
0: uh it's so great because people are people aren't there because they're metal heads or yeah. glam metalheads or whatever we'll talk about the genres later um it's uh they're there because they want these particular funny sets of songs and christopher Guest knows that these the the, the, the this sort of particular group of entertainers is very much connected
1: Yeah, so this is going to be a really fun month, I think, and it also has like these wonderful bookends of A Mighty Wind and Spinal Tap, but uh, with that, Peter, are you ready to get in a little deeper and talk about this is Spinal Tap?
0: Yeah, let's do it.
1: So what happens in this Spinal Tap, if you don't know? So it is a story. A lovely lady. Barely, there is a lovely lady who shows up near the end. Uh, But she's not in it for most of it. But it it does a really good job of setting out its premise that um, Rob Reiner, who is playing uh, Marty uh, uh, DeBerge, is making a documentary of Britain's loudest band, Spinal Tap. As they embark upon their North American tour, they've had some successful albums. They have a new album coming out, and he's going to follow them around as as they kind of uh, release this album called Smell the Glove. So it starts with like a bunch of interviewees at a, a rock concert about how much they um, love Spinal Tap. It starts with uh, Michael McKean, Christopher Guest, Harry Shear are playing the three band members. Uh, Harry Shear plays... Um, uh, Derek Smalls who's kind of the bass player um, uh, Christopher Guest plays Nigel Tufnell who is one of the, is the lead or, or sorry yeah lead guitarist and writes a lot of the songs with Michael McKean who's playing David St. Hubbins who is the rhythm guitarist and uh, and and singer and so it opens with a song Tonight We're Gonna Rock You which uh, you know very Kiss-esque um, it's one of the things that the songs do really well is that um, most of them are actually like not very much a parody, right? Like they're not, <laughs> they're, they're
0: like, they're like 15 degrees off from the real thing. <laughs> yeah. Bottom, and some of them like, are not. Tonight I'm going to rock you is basically, uh, I love rock and roll. Um, just with clumsier wording. Big bottom is basically the queen song that you know, Fat bottom about. Girls, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know, actually it was funny is that this movie came up recently, um, Zach Groton, guest of the the show, actually made a really good point about the songs. Uh, one of the, we covered "Pop Star," which "Pop Star" heavily indebted to this movie. I mean, basically, it's a it's in some ways a almost a remake of of uh, a pop era remake of this Spinal Tap. But uh, he made a good point that the the reason why he likes. Uh, he, the, he says the songs in like Pop Star, The Lonely Island songs are so much better than the, the Spinal Tap songs, but the this is Spinal Tap songs um, succeed really well. And um, these actually feel like they would have been written by a band at the time, and so the critical reaction and the audience reaction fits. Like they're they're they they're not all that complicated songs. The lyrics in some cases are funny, but they're you know to. You know, um, um, big bottom and fat bottom girls about how much they like girls with big butts. It's not like they're they're. It's fifteen degrees. It has maybe slightly funnier lines or intentionally funny lines as opposed to accidentally funny lines. But it still feels what it could be mistaken. Where uh, Zach's point was that pop star. One of the problems is that all those songs and lonely island songs in general are generally really well critically reviewed. So even though it's funny. If an actual band put out like Finest Girl, <laughs> Osama Bin Laden, it's too clever for the person that is getting terrible reviews. Like music credits would actually like those songs. Um, and I think that I think that is a very salient point. So I'm not going to recount every song that's played here. But they are – unless you're listening closely from a sound design, from a lyrical perspective, from everything else, they feel really – Uh, You know, to that point, I'm not surprised that people could have missed the parody because if if this was on the radio and I didn't know it was Spinal Tap, I would not be able to tell the difference between a Kiss song, a Rat song, you know, a a Scorpion song or anything else. It would only be if I was listening closely that I may start noticing that there's a couple lines that feel a little bit too clever for the type of band that I'm listening to. But yeah, uh, tonight, you know. Uh, tonight we're gonna rock you and rock you like a hurricane like feel <laughs> feel of a piece, uh, uh, uh from an aesthetic standpoint. but anyways so the, you know the it, at first you think you're seeing this this uh, you know successful band you see a, a album release party with the head of the label and stuff like that and there starts to be a little bit of warning signs that they' they're hung up on this album cover. That uh, it's, it's the album's called smell the glove that there's this woman uh, tied up being forced to smell a glove and there's concern that uh, it may be a sexist look and of course these people are oblivious uh, you know Christopher Guest characters like what's wrong with being sexy and. Um, and I, I want to get back to that. I don't, I don't need to spend too much time on that. But they, as 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 uh, as Rob Reiner starts interviewing them and asking them questions about their history and how they started out as like a, a monkeys uh, ripoff or. Uh, even something more like psychedelic and and they've had a problem with drummers that keep dying unexpectedly which is a very funny joke, they keep going through the end <laughs> but you start to realize that all two of their spontaneous al- combustions two spontaneous <laughs> combustions uh, choking on vomit, like they keep losing drummers, but you start to realize that all of their albums have been kind of critically panned, right? They they have a very funny joke about their album Shark Sandwich just getting a review called Shit Sandwich um, which feels very proto-Pitchfork <laughs> like pitchfork basically did start writing album reviews for stuff they hated like that but of course the band members are like who where did they print that that's not a real review but you get the sense that again they're they're really uh, critically disliked even marty at the beginning calls them the loudest they're known for the loudest band not any actually like quality signifier um so you start they start going on all these uh tours and at first like you know it's the 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 they have all these performances that go slightly wrong and then aggressively more wrong. So the first one is just you know Christopher Guest falling on his back and not being able to get up, and it, you know it shows that they're a little older than they're trying to portray. By the end of the movie, like they have whole sets in the Stonehenge sequence that just don't go right, or people getting locked into their 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 sets. Meanwhile, you have like as they go through, you know, tour stops are getting canceled. The label doesn't want to re- release the album. When they finally do, it's a black label that no one shows up for at their signing. People aren't showing up for the concerts. And uh even the radio, when they hear at one point, is kind of mocking them for, like, they play an old song of theirs uh by the, the Talismans, right? That's the name of their old band, Talismans?
0: Oh, man. There's a two mix? There's- yeah, they have a they have a few band names hold on yeah they have a few incarnations but anyway um, because they become different they became different bands over the years as they uh, as the
1: as the first, as popular styles like changed. they weren't known
0: as spinal tap when they were a British invasion band yeah
1: uh, yeah uh, like I think one is like yeah they, they have that whole strawberry alarm clock face uh, too yeah um, T- uh, the yeah, the Thamesmen, not the Talisman. Oh, sorry, the Thamesmen, Tames- yeah, yeah Thamesmen. Um, <laughs> they have accents. It's hard. After that, yeah, after they were called the Originals, <laughs> but then there was another band called the Originals, so they named themselves the New Originals. <laughs> 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 but but anyway, so like, there's just a series of again, like people not showing up for concerts, things getting canceled, people not showing up for signing, the album not selling nothing getting any radio airplay, and, like, the band is still going on this tour that just is aggressively not being, you know, visited. They still end up showing these shots of these gigs that people are uh, attending, but they're going worse and worse. And you have a couple things happen near the end of the movie. One, David St. Hovins, Michael McKean's character, is, like, finally, it's been such a disaster for a tour. His wife comes on in, like, kind of a Yoko-type type situation. Nigel Tufnell, uh, she starts getting more invested in how the band's doing and has a lot of suggestions, which makes the manager, uh, upset and makes Nigel feel like, Hey, uh, I'm supposed to be your creative partner and she's supposed to be your, you know, romantic partner. Uh, and so, uh, it all kind of ends by the time that they end up, uh, they, they get booked at like, a, a Navy hall dance that goes on at, you know, Oh, that 2100 hours. Um, and as they're trying to play their song Sex Farm for a, not a captive audience, um, the, the, the walkie-talkies go over the loudspeaker. And Nigel literally is just like, this is, this is like – I cannot imagine a lower bottom. Leaves the band. The rest of the band who keeps going on tour also recognizes that we can't play most of our songs anymore because Nigel either wrote them or co-wrote them. Uh, which causes Harry Shearer to, like, keep trying to pitch this uh, this one-man show or this, you know, in a very, like, George Harrison Ringo-type situation, except, you know, not talented. <laughs> He's been working on his one-man jazz odyssey that he keeps recommending that people, they should do instead. Uh, and that really, the nature of that is they, they are at a state fair uh, where no one shows up, and they're booked underneath Puppet Show. So Puppet Show and Spinal Tap. Uh, and there, there's like 20 people uh, in the are seeing them. But around that time, the you know uh, after all these terrible things have happened, Nigel comes back. So he spoke to their manager, and they have a, a, a sex farm is uh, is like number one in Japan. Uh, do you want to get the band back together? And uh, you know they end up having a reunion on stage after initial re- rejection. And the, the movie cuts to them in Japan uh being a successful rock band in a different uh to a different audience than they expected again.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a good recap. So it is like a fairly plotless movie. Um the character of Janine um, was added as a band member's girlfriend uh, after producers were uh, anxious about them being like, well, you're just shooting tons of you fucking around with your comedian friends. Um,
1: yeah. there's no they wanted something here. that could potentially cause conflict and drive a yeah, plot more specifically. I, yeah,
0: I think while I have problems with the Janine plot as a thing, um, it it is a good instinct. Like That's a good producer note to be like, you need to build... Uh, some sort of of uh, that energy a wedge. because yeah. if this is just a series of performances, it's not really like a a movie. Um, yeah. It's it's a you know I guess that makes it a little bit closer to like a concert documentary. But the thing is that like the best concert documentaries are either this is a show. We're presenting the show as best as we, as we can. You know, we talked about, um, this must be the, pl- or sorry, we talked about, um, Stop Making Sense and we talked about, um, uh, Last Waltz a little bit. Those are just yep. concert documentaries. That's, that's one concert or, you know, a series of concerts, uh, from a particular tour edited together to, to give you the sort of concert experience. If you're making a documentary about a band and you're trying to like get into the band, those all have narratives. They have some sort of narrative structure. They have a big show coming up, but one of their members is addicted to drugs. They have a, they have, um, you know, they haven't, uh, they've been broken up for a, a period of time and now they have to get back together to do a show and they don't know how they're going to be in a room or they've been fighting like crazy over a particular piece of information. Um, in this instance, a, a, uh, a girlfriend who's sort of inserting herself into the band dynamics. Um, Let's, let's focus on that. And like, that's, I think that was a good
1: producer note. You're right, because originally their idea was like, let's do Last Waltz, let's do No Direction Home, um, which has like some funny like conflict moments of like, clearly certain people in the band not being like as thrilled with directions or stuff like that, but... What's funny is that, like, what, what, what they were actually waiting for by way of influence, they didn't inspire this, but, like, this ends up being a lot more, like, later Eagles documentaries with bands that hate each other or, like, um, even, like, Rattle and Hum, which is, like, a documentary of, like, a band at its worst impulses being, like, re- roundly rejected by its public ultimately through that. Oh, yeah. And they, even though they had um, – even though they definitely had a turnaround redemption, that was really a deer of the way that the, the public perceived them because of how, like – big and full of themselves and stuff like that that it was but obviously like this this predates um a lot of those a lot of those like instances that's almost served as like real life spinal tap documentary so yeah it is a good producer note to have a wedge or a conflict i mean that's how movies work (laughs) Uh, i will say that you know this this borrows a very harmful stereotype about like Kind of a misogynistic stereotype of like women just don't get bands and they ruin it, right? Like Yeah, let's
0: let's just talk about that now because Janine is well, like I, one of the one of my things that I don't like about this movie. Both in both taking the movie at face value, but also the like you know socially, I don't like it.
1: Here's what I will say: I, I agree with that. Like it leads to all the worst perceptions, um, or like worst stereotypes and stuff like that. Here's what I will say though: I think that. Even though I agree that this is my it's my least favorite part of the movie, it doesn't it doesn't really work, especially through the lens of 2021. It's not as mean as it easily could have. Like it doesn't ruin or sink the movie because it is really operating on the fact that like, you know, Nigel doesn't hate Janine because she's a woman and they're a bunch of dudes trying to do Brock stuff. She he gets frustrated with Janine because she is trying to mix. Her, you know, uh, you know, her, uh, personal life that she has with, with as a marriage or a support system for, for Nigel, not Nigel, sorry, David, uh, with, with kind of, um, a creative outlet that, that Nigel has created with David. And like, there's not like – there's if there had been like a scene where like David realizes – like David realizes that Janina's is like toxic and like she's actually like a mean person who's trying to like to hurt people and stuff like that. And then she realizes they need to break up and I need to leave them behind. I feel like that trope uh, would – like I, I feel like I would have much bigger problems with the movie. All, all David ends up realizing is that like Janine is really trying to support her husband in a way that's just not working well. And the 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 realization that David has is that like they're not they're not struggling. The the reason that they're struggling is not some quick fix that like costumes or masks or all these other things that Janine in like a sort of a good hearted way is trying to help with. Like, yeah. I know you're struggling. I'm going to come out and support you, and I'm going to try to suggest some some paths that I think will, will, will help. Now, I'm not saying all that stuff is, like, handled great because you're seeing the other – because the ideas are kind of silly, but they're no more silly than anything that the band is suggesting themselves in a lot of ways. So Yeah, that's I, a hard thing because,
0: like, the movie doesn't have a straight man. Like, Mar- Marty is as close as the movie has to a straight man. And he's uh, – he, he, uh, as the movie goes on, starts to remove himself more and more. Or at yeah. least the editing starts to remove him more and more.
1: Yeah, it feels like – well, with the exception of like the, um, the this goes to 11 scene, he's basically not in the back half of the movie. And part of it just seems like if you're cutting the movie, like everyone knows who's asking the question. We can just – we can just have the answer, which is obviously a stylistic choice that Guest and all other mockumentaries, for the most part, take from this point on, right? And like, I, I, oh, I think it's a we smart don't.
0: move to just yeah. slowly remove Marty, because he's our in, and our in is this guy thinks this band is rad. He also, as he starts interviewing them, realizes that they're idiots, um, sweet idiots, but idiots nonetheless, and then... The, uh, the, and then as the movie goes on, it, it, it's, it, it, I, I won't say this was the intention, but this is how it plays. The movie realizes that you cannot just laugh at them the entire time. Yeah. Like, structurally, that does not work. It also just does not work for... That would make this movie age like fucking milk, um, because like, that's not how people view comedies anymore. Now it's like, okay, you can laugh at your, your protagonist for the first act, but eventually you have to get on someone's side.
1: Yeah, they're they're generally well-intentioned individuals. I mean, they, they have all the normal, like, trappings of fame and, you know, being, you know, to your point, kind of idiots in general and, like... It's a pop not, star thing, too. Yeah,
0: like, not... Pop star laughs at, at, laughs at Connor for real for a very long time and then it's like, but, however, this is a movie, so we're going to need to circle back and make you like him in some capacity.
1: Yeah, like, actually, one of my favorite scenes in just, like you know the the line between satire and stupidity type thing that's like they don't understand satire and so like they're you know their their album cover and their songs are misogynist and sexist which the labels calling out but they're but they but they think that the concept of satire is that you do something sexist and misogynist and then just say you're joking which just feels like so like you know, I, I I hate always having to relate stuff to like just what's going on in current era of politics. But like, isn't that like alt right, GamerGate, online fucking stuff? Is like you just say shitty things, and then if someone calls you on it, you say you're joking, and like, yeah. the fact that the fact that Spinal Tap like legitimately thinks that's what a joke like it matches kind of how they just are 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 very stupid.
0: <laughs> like, yeah, the irony poisoning thing. Um is like feels like it's pulling from similar threads which is that like they're like we want to be provocative you're like well what you did is actually like it's not counterculture it's actually misogynist and they're like well it's
1: satire then
0: yeah they just don't understand it's not like clicking in their heads why that would be well no we we like to freak people out we like to be sexy what do you yeah what's wrong
1: with being sexy no sexist but that's the other thing too like for a movie from 1982 like you know there's not like there's not a lot there's there's frustration with the with the the, the misogyny in the Janine plot is based on the, them leaning on a trope of a, a yoko t- ruining a band that has been popularized by pop culture i would actually say that in the movie one thing that's really nice is that no one is ever like like sexist or misogynist or leans on that trope directly to janine as I said, David doesn't realize that she needs an evil woman or something like that trying to take over the band. She just has like she's she's well intentioned as well and in in a way that's ultimately not as helpful as she, you know, she wanted it to be or that David hoped it would be.
0: And David's and, way of fixing the band should not be taking uh childish snipes at her. His way of redirecting the band is to reconnect with his friends and yeah. to enjoy in in
1: their successes. Well, and also for a movie about rock stars who put fucking cucumbers down their pants because they want to be sexy, like, there is – there isn't, like – most of them seem like they're, uh, you know, in stable relationships. There's not, like, any scene of them trying to gather groupies or anything like that. Like, this movie is actually, like, for that part of the quote-unquote rock star lifestyle, especially what was accepted – uh, not, not like, actually accepted, but culturally accepted in 1982. Like, this movie doesn't do any of that. So, yeah, the Janine stuff's not so funny, and it's not so funny because it's leaning on tropes that have been very popularized as misogynistic and sexist. But I would say that this movie, my negative reaction to that plot point has more to do with metatextual things outside of this movie more than what's actually presented in this movie.
0: Um. Yeah, and I think the the Janine plot is is relying on uh, and it's promoting the sort of idea of um a Yoko that uh yeah. someone's, and the idea is really this: it's that like um a woman will uh, invade men's space and defeat it, defeat this hyper masculine space by challenging their established, what's tried and true, uh by um insert, and some of that is you know something that band bands can see in themselves, because they're seeing, yeah, man, I can't do the tour that long, I need to be home with my family, and then the guys that have been partying for 20 years are like, come on, you don't need to go to a softball game. my friend, yeah. Yeah, and the Yoko thing, I'm glad you you already got to where I was going, but, like, the Yoko thing is particularly sexist, because, like, it's the sort of thing that, like, I think even well-intentioned people don't... Like, a lot of people know John Lennon was abusive, but, like, I think even well-intentioned people don't know that, like, Yoko didn't, <laughs> like, necessarily insert herself in all of that. It was that John was had grown bored and listless, and his drug abuse had gotten so bad. Yeah, He was, like, he was already not great about showing up to sessions prepared and ready to work, and Paul McCartney was a, a workhorse, and Ringo and George just, like, fucking wanted to play music, and then John would show up to sessions, like already high or he'd want to throw out a bunch of material that the rest of the band had put a bunch of work into and then yoko was just kind of dragged into that because john was controlling and creepy and would drag her along
1: Whereas this which which is a little bit here though right like because david asked her to come she agrees and david wants her to be trying to use her artistic side to help you know, uh, to help stem a tour that just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So, like that's, I, I do think it's it, it is actually more actual actual Yoko than perception Yoko as it comes to how it's presented in the movie, um, because you know she's she's not uninvited. It's just that she. You know, David is the lead singer and one of the founders of the band. Is saying, "I want you to come do these things," and she is trying, trying to help. It's just that you know, David really. The issue is more that David didn't. Not that there's an evil woman trying to insert herself and take over the band. The issue is that David didn't respect his, you know, his ultimately his partners and his work colleagues enough to to have the conversation about whether like that made sense for them as a as a unit
0: yeah and speaking of them as a unit like um i think one of the things about the reason the janine performance doesn't work is is i think uh the actor uh she was kind of set up to fail because all of these guys are essentially working with their old improv people and working with old comedy people or people they trusted from like the, the you know the acting and comedy world and then she's kind of pulled in and she all of the bits that work with her there's two bits that work with her um because this is just a very funny movie um and it's there's pre-scripted bits the astrology thing um where they yeah. the astrology theming where they almost are like turning the members of band of the band into like almost like an astrology themed kiss um that's very funny and and them being like how are we going to have time to turn him into a lion? Um, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, her becoming the band manager and hustling around. And then she has an itinerary for them. And you're like, Oh, that's awesome. She's taking over the band. And then she shows the itinerary and it's all horoscopes.
1: Well, yeah. Cause again, her problem, you know, the reason David brought her in was to fix a problem that even like a professional tour manager in a band that's been, you know, a workhorse for a while can't solve the fact that no one is coming. No one is interested in hearing, their music anymore, and their like their album became you know unknown. And I you know that's we alluded to this earlier. One of the thing that makes this so much different than all the other movies we're going to talk about this month is that all the other movies we're going to talk about this month have a third act centerpiece that really the first two acts are prepping for. Waiting for guffman has the play, Best in Show has the the dog show, and uh, Mighty Wind has the concert. This movie is actually structured in reverse where. The first act is kind of demonstrating them at their high point and their and their you know the, the they're performing songs in concert halls that you as an audience know that you as an audience member don't quite know is about to start taking a turn. I kind of forgot that how like human and depressing and sad the like back 20 minutes of this movie is like it's yeah. not that there's not jokes. It's it's such a it's such a bummer and, and it's not played As a mean-spirited comedy thing, to your point. Like, it's not laughing at them. It's, like, sitting with these people who are having their livelihoods taken away in a way that they don't know what to do with and can't control. And that's, like, causing stress. And I, like... I imagine one of the reasons why bands connected with this so much, like, how much of, as a culture, Peter, are we obsessed with this idea of, like, these bands that were successful and then disappear? Like, for all the bands that, like, stopped having hit albums but still are able to tour, like, like, a Pixies or, you know, someone like that that, like, hasn't made a, a, like, a really great album in, you know, 20, 25 years, but... They, they have so much cultural cachet that they can still go on tour and play all their hits and stuff like that. Because they, they, they
0: put out, like, three of the best rock albums of
1: all time in a row. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that – so even when they break up and get back together, it's fine. How many bands do you, like – do you, like, go through and go, yeah, whatever happened to them? And you find, like, you know, someone working at an insurance company or stuff like that. And, like, you know, these are bands that you saw on MTV and, like, huge hits and, like – we talk about this with actors sometimes too. Like the, the, the thing we, you and I are never going to know. We're never going to know what it's like to have that level of fame. We're also never going to know what it's like when we're on the cover of magazines and then have to start debating whether we keep doing what we're doing or um, go get a job or quit or like, you know, go get a quote unquote real job or whatever else and, and quit because, you know, like there's so much pathos in like, that concept of like that scene where they're supposed to be signing their records. Right. And literally no one shows up. No one shows up. The tour, the, the, the tour manager of that leg of the tour is, is apologizing, saying, kick my butt. There's people in the record store and they're sitting in this tiny table and no one has come up to sign their records. Like for their record release party, like it is, it's, it's, it's played for a little bit of laughs and that the tour managers being like, I think a, stereotypical, like, oh, like a promoter or whatever. I guess he's not the tour manager, promoter. Them sitting at the table is like just this sad, heartbreaking moment, like seeing David's face when they decide to do the jazz odyssey and like the 20 people that were kind of tolerating them in the audience at that amplifier go from like standing up to booing and just being like, oh, my life and my livelihood and my creative passion is over.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and and it's funny you mention the structure being a little a little strange like maybe it's in reverse. This movie follows to me a um a rom-com structure um which is Heck,
1: Yeah, it's true. Yeah. which
0: is that um everything is, you know, a relationship is sort of chugging along, people are having fun, we get to see them all having fun and and fucking around and we get a sense of Nigel and David as like People as like a, a a loving couple. They've known each other since they were kids. There's a really there's a bunch of really sweet, sincere scenes in this movie. Um, oh yeah, that like I forgot about because the
1: song where they're like talking about. Um the first song they ever wrote and they're trying to like
0: jog each other's memory in that fast food restaurant so so sweet and they're being cute with each other and that's like also clearly because um all three of them are like gifted musicians and gifted songwriters and like michael mckean has like fucking pipes so like even him just singing sort of like at a not embarrassing level in a public place is like it's like oh well the this, this rings true. This has a, a vibrancy yeah. and a truth to it. And that truth carries throughout the movie where, like, it is sort of like a rom-com structure about Nigel and David getting back together because it's like, oh, oh, he gets distracted by Janine and then um, he gets pulled aside and then eventually, um, you know, he comes back at the end and he's like, yeah, I'll just walk on stage and play the song with you. And he just picks up a guitar and they're immediately back together. And then that, well, originally he says, no,
1: like like it's when he's playing the song and it's like, you know what? Come on.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's this sweet moment that, uh, very much in a rom-com fashion. Um, (laughs) one of their drummers dies, which is, you know, very traditional for a rom-com. There's a sacrificial lamb at the end of a rom-com. Uh, the the best friend uh gets sacrificed to uh, the sun god or the moon god usually um and explodes um but then there's a there's a cut to them absolutely like having a blast in japan there's a there's it's just a great amazing cut of like it's not that um it's not that they just had one really great moment on stage together and the band continued to dissolve. It's that this really great moment on on stage together revitalized their relationship. They remembered what made made them special. And then they go to Japan to like relive some of that glory. And just like a real life relationship, it's almost like a very realistic rom-com. Just like a real life relationship. At some point, the band is gonna crumble a little bit, they're gonna to have to chase another musical trend, they're gonna yeah. to have to they're gonna to have to find a new way to make money. I can't wait for their
1: techno phase. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh he could definitely just uh take the lick my love pump song and uh just keep the Yeah. Up. I mean
1: that's basically a prodigy hook, right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> lick my love pump. <laughs> lick my love pop. Um, Come lick my palm. You want to? You want to? You want to lick it? I
1: mean, I'm basically just singing "Breathe" with the lyrics to to uh, to, Degas' love pump. Um, I also yeah. Hold on that that moment though, where like I want I want to pause on that moment because that moment where you know yeah Nigel comes back and is like, "We hey we can go on tour." Like, we have a number one record. And David is like, are you serious? Like, oh, so now you're here. You've abandoned us. We have a whole new name. We're going to have to write new songs. And now you're here. Everything's fixed. Everything's fixed. Like, you know, because David, even though he was, you know, he I think it's it's easy to say like him inserting Janine into trying to save the band is what, what ended it. But you know, I, I do think like why I think Janine feels superfluous, the stress of a band performing Puppet Show and Spinal Tap would have been enough to probably cause some stress and debate as to what direction their band should go and kind of, you know, start having the the, the, the cracks in the foundation enough to split to split the band. And, you know, David Tells them that they don't need them and they're not going to do that. And they're happy what they're doing. And they go on stage to play tonight is going to rock you. And, uh, you know, and in, very, in in just a sweet moment, Nigel just stays and, and watches and does that little nod about like kind of the the nonverbal like, yeah, this is a good song. You're doing a good job. And and that's when, you know, David motions for for Nigel to come up. And that moment is so like for for the last 25 minutes or so, that's been so depressing. That moment is so, like, great. And, yeah, it then goes into them, like, you know, back into a crowded crowded theater in Japan where they are back to doing, you know, they're uh, using their guitars like dicks and putting their tongues out and pyrotechnics and all that stuff. But that moment where, where David realizes that he said his piece, he expressed what he was frustrating, frustrated. And there's no reason to keep like to keep this going on. Like there's nothing to be gained. And ultimately he doesn't want to keep this fight going on anymore. Uh and calls him up on stage is such like a joyous moment. It literally almost got me choked up this time. And I think like it really communicates what it's like to bury the hatchet with someone that you're very close with. Like how how intoxicating and energ- energizing that moment when you're fighting with a best friend or a family member or a spouse or a significant other and you're just like, "You know what? Yeah, I'm sorry. Let's let's like that is such a good feeling when you bury the hatchet and this 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 movie's able to to capture it in a way that I think most movies actually don't because it, it doesn't require verbalization. Like, the way he's able to do that head nod and motion him over just to come on stage, let's just get back to what we were doing, and Nigel has that very sweet smile recognizing that they made it past this hump is actually i think more how close relationships work than always needing to like come to sort of like like lawyer agreement as to what you've learned from the moment yeah
0: this is a movie that i feel like um would be one of my all-time favorites if they actually leaned into that sincerity a little bit and we got a little bit more of the japan tour or we got a little bit more um before things really fall apart um because like when this movie decides to be sincere, it's great. Like Christopher Guest was really focused on sincerity in um uh in, in in um the performances and that they were Yeah,
1: he he's always been very clear about understanding the characters even if they are joke machines. Like who are these people?
0: Yeah. Yeah, like what makes these people tick and where's their heart and like he was also famously very into um making sure that if a character is playing a song. The song is obviously not being played live. This is not a series of live performances. This is sound uh, dubbed over, ADR'd over, and then they're performing to the song live. And he, like, went back and shot... They went back and, and at some point, late in production shot insert shots of them actually hitting the chords. Because well, he
1: did! They're real musicians. <laughs> well, what's actually funny is that, which I guess tells you a lot about... Um... Christopher Guest in general, which we'll probably talk about more in future future episodes this month. But Christopher Guest was so unhappy with the shots that showed them playing instruments as not really capturing that they were actually playing instruments that he went back personally, yeah. shot a bunch of things of him playing the songs, and sent him to Rob Reiner to be edited into the movie. And what's yeah. amazing about that is Which not what's a bad amazing, thing about but that is that we're like... gonna get into forcast yeah. is definitely a perfectionist in, and sometimes perfectionists are not pleasant people.
0: yeah what's what's amazing about that is that like that sense of perfectionism or um, the obsession over that part of the craft is probably part of the secret sauce on why this became a cult movie and why he was able to sell uh, a trilogy of comedy movies um, later. Spino Tap did not sell well, but it became a cult movie. Uh, and the reason is largely because of musicians being obsessed with it. And musicians notice if you're faking it or doing it right. Yeah. And it's weird that this probably this one weird, this one specific detail, he wanted to make sure that like str- stringing the instruments correctly or strumming the the guitars correctly or strumming the, the, the bass correctly was right. May have been the secret sauce, like just the right amount of. Uh, verisimilitude that these bands needed to to connect with and feel like yes Spinal Tap is a joke band but they're also a real band and when a band is real I identify with them and and I love I love the um the little the little moments uh in this movie that are uh that are like that where they're just trying to nail a little bit of like verisimilitude of a band uh like the the moments where they're playing shitty gigs um like uh that where they're at the air force base and they're sort of like politely humoring Fred Willard who's like politely making jokes to this band and uh, is,
1: is, I, I, I'll, can we pause there? Because we probably won't get back to Fred Willard. It's great that he's in this movie. Obviously, becomes a huge part of the secret success. Or not even secret success. of The success of later guest movies. It's worth noting that he may have been the most famous cast member besides Rob Reiner at this time. Uh, because he was on a show, at least most famous from a comedy nerd perspective. Are you aware of the show Fernwood Tonight, Peter? I am not. So, Fernwood Tonight is fucking amazing it's actually one of those weird things that my parents used to talk about as like their favorite show of all time that aired for two seasons and like in early days of ebay as like the show had disappeared i uh found like the complete season on like burned dvrs and bought it for my mom for a christmas present and end up watching most of it with her it's martin Mull and fred w- willard as uh as like it's a, a talk show host of this small town, like a date, like a nighttime talk show host of Fernwood's Night that aired in the 70s on like one of the networks like NBC or CBS or something. And it is the funniest fucking shit. It is exactly what it sounds like. It is a it feels like 30 years ahead of its time. Uh, I gotta and check so pre- this out. It sounds rad. Yeah, I don't know if it's on YouTube or anything like that. I don't even think my mom has those. DVDs, but obviously if someone was able to burn them on DVDs, it exists somewhere out there. But yeah, it had – Fred Willard was like – it ran for a couple seasons and Fred Willard was one of the hosts. So he was actually like weirdly not a, oh, here's a cameo of someone who became bigger in the in the guestiverse or whatever. He was actually sort of a already established like uh, improv comedic parody actor name at the time for like comedy nerds. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that because he has such a
0: um – he has such a magnetic energy in in, in these movies. Um, and I kind of wondered where he cut his teeth from. Because he's someone who's just came to... He came uh, to me like fully formed in the later trilogy that we're going to discuss this month. Uh, but I didn't Hold like, on. know...
1: So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you this link. In perfect syndication style in the 70s, it has one season that ran for 65 episodes. Oh, also, God. Also produced by Norman Lear.
0: Oh, that's fun! I wonder no, yeah, if that's how they met. I mean, like Norman they Lear's like, I know a funny guy, or if he was like a uh, part of the the comedy, the, the, all yeah. the comedy circles that they were
1: created running. by Norman Lear, produced by Alan Thick as a spin off replacement for Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman parody talk show host uh, with sidekick announcer Jerry Hubbard, played by Fred Willard, and Martin Mull as the host. This is nineteen seventy-seven, Peter. It's this it's... is
0: the sort of this is the sort of shit that like. Um, we get easy access to, like, such garbage just sitting on Amazon Prime, but then you want to go watch, um, like, Barney Miller, which is a genuinely, like, great old, like, dramedy show, and it's like, eh, sorry, you're gonna have to buy, you're gonna have to buy, uh, out-of-print DVDs for that one.
1: Yeah, it doesn't, like, it looks like, uh, the only, I see one full episode on YouTube that's their 60th episode with guest Harry Shear, so, Oh cool. Yeah, I'm sure there's a way to... uh, Obviously, again, the whole series I bought at some point in, like, 2004. So, it exists somewhere, but if you've never heard of Fernwood Tonight, it is as amazing as it sounds. It uh, Again, it just... I remember watching it with my mom, expecting, like, you know, a 70s, like, like Beverly Hillbillies. And was just like, what is this? How did this air? Why wasn't this the most popular television show of all time? This is amazing. Because of Beverly Hillbillies. Um... Proper. that's great
0: i i love i love that fred willard uh i was going say is he just has like a small very understated role as like a air force dork um talking about how their hair is long and everything and they like politely oblige him and then what i love i love about the performances is that like there's such exciting insane energy at the beginning of the movie where they're uh playing uh tonight we're gonna rock you tonight and then for this this one like everybody in the band is giving half energy until one of them just inevitably just gives the fuck up and then leaves yeah. the stage and they're like, well, what do we what do, we do with this? And then they just slowly like peter off the, until the scene ends. And uh, that's sort of like being able to perform small little comedy moments, be able to perform big, ridiculous set pieces, like um, the Stonehenge sequence is big, broad and ridiculous it reminds me of uh corky's play and waiting for guffman um where it's like wow this movie was really quiet and then we get to the play section and everything is so broad and there's a million jokes and we're ready to go similar to that like the little moments of um like them standing at elvis my favorite quote in the movie we're gonna probably just need to start dropping these but my favorite quote in the movie <laughs> is when they're standing over elvis's grave um, and they're like, <laughs> they're like, really, really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? And then, uh, David goes too much, too much fucking perspective now.
1: <laughs>
0: just a, it's like, it's a great corollary to, um, the line, uh, there's a fine, there's a, a thin line between stupid and clever. Yeah. Um, because the idea like the, <laughs> them being just smart enough, just, just smart enough to recognize like uh yeah we're da- we're in dangerous territory and I really can't have a self-revelation right now. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean that's so much of it too like what's uh you know when they're going through the album covers and the reviews they they've gotten and they're um and 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 they're just like they recognize their bad reviews but they're also like clearly at the beginning of this documentary of this guy falling around and I uh the the review of like the gospel according to Spinal Tap Okay, yeah, no, I mean, that's some... They're kind of, like, saying there's valid criticism, and they're like, all right, and then Shark Sandwich came next. Which, uh, one reviewer said Shit Sandwich, and they're like, no! Co- okay, hold on. <laughs> like, they recognize wrote that... that in the newspaper? They wrote that in the newspaper? What printed that? Like, they recognize that maybe Marty is being a dick to them, because, like, how could that possibly be a review? And they're right, and again, the the one of the funny things is, like, you know, what What was it, like, the Jet album that Pitchfork just put, a like, a sad dog picture up? And oh, it was like uh, a monkey pissing
0: in its own mouth.
1: That's what it was, so, yeah. And, like, they start doing stuff like that. And it was like, yeah, in a weird way. Like, those joke reviews that could never be published pre-sages, like, an actual sometimes i don't know controversial is not the right word but like eye-rolling form of music criticism
2: well yeah because um,
0: who would uh presumably that person got paid the same amount of money to write to quote unquote write that review as someone who wrote a thoughtful thousand yeah. word kind of maybe two thousand word in some cases on pitchfork uh review
1: uh ebert wrote, wrote about this in his great movies thing on on spinal tab ebert loved this movie Unsurprisingly, I ended up liking most things that Guest did. Um I, I don't know what he thought of for your consideration, but I better for looked, he gave it like a, you know, three stars, not as good, but interesting. Move along. Um, but uh he uh he really hones in on how brilliant the Stonehenge sequence is, because you know, he he writes about how in, in, in lesser comedies they would have just done the Stonehenge sequence where they're, they're playing and it's another disaster that befalls them. And the, and, and the genius of this is Spinal Tap and why their comedy is so good is they let you know beforehand in minute detail how much of a failure this is going to be. It's, eight, it's
0: eighteen it's eighteen inches tall because he yeah. didn't understand that the, the two tick marks means inches, not
1: feet. <laughs> yeah, so it shows it shows that they need to have Stonehenge as a way to revitalize the band. It shows him drawing out the concept. It shows their manager meeting with the artist who created it and gives them the prop. And oh, then also sh- also in the middle of that? Their manager not
0: deciding to go talk to them and say, hey, I, we do not have time to do this bit anymore. Yeah. Let's rework this. This got His manager up. being like, you told me to get you Stonehenge. I got you
1: Stonehenge. And just making them find out on tour, <laughs> on, stage. on stage. So The brilliance there, like Ebert calls out, is that everyone in the audience knows that the Stonehenge is not going to be what they're expected. And he, he writes about how. So much of the reason why this is like a cut above for 1982, or like he's like the, the reason why this feels so revolutionary, is that like it, most movies he he's seen would have relied on the fact that it was a smaller than average Stonehenge size to get the laughs, which would have made laughs. That they've almost like tapped into, pardon the pun, a new way to to uh, to almost you know in a way it's almost like. I don't want to say inventing because that is almost certainly hi- hyperbole, but it, it's really codifying what cringe comedy is. You like you know when Michael Scott goes in to talk about racism and you hear him talk to the camera about all the things he's planning to do with his Samuel L. Jackson and Morgan Freeman like displays. You know it is going to be a disaster. You're not you're not surprised by it being a disaster, and the fact that you go in knowing how bad it's going to be is actually what makes it. So so good because you are. Um, it's that idea of treating comedy like the, the 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 thin line between comedy and horror, right? You you are watching these people perform this entire Stonehenge song on stage, and in the same way that you're anticipating the the shark coming in Jaws when you start hearing those notes, you know at some point their big savior of the tour, mo- tour moment, the sto- the giant Stonehenge coming down is going to be 18 inches tall we've seen what it looks like we've had the manager yell at the person who made it uh we know that's going to happen and that anticipation is what is what makes us like watch through you know half covered eyes recognizing that we're about to cringe with whatever happens and that that really is kind of a you know a really genius moment of this movie that really builds off a lot of stuff that like Andy Kaufman and other really like genius comedy minds at the time we're doing um, because it the easier joke is just the Stonehenge is too small and that would have been funny. But like the way that they really build that around understanding every literal dimension of what they're about to get. But not knowing what to do about it, besides just going along with it, is why it is such a memorable sequence.
0: Yeah, it's a it's it's a great point, because that is one of the moments of uh, a scripted prop in the movie um, and a scripted sequence in the movie that like we occasionally see this in, you know, uh, supposed improv shows where it's like we need to have a set piece. We need to have a set piece. This is something that, like, yeah, it's obviously impossible to improv. You can't just have little people in um, druid outfits ready to go. Um, but like it it speaks to so much of the ridiculousness and the, the, the dysfunction of the band that they have a manager who clearly is either checked out or burnt out or I don't, I can't actually put a pin on the manager, but he's such a fucking funny character. Um, he's so, he's so, he's, he's he has
1: that perfect thing of like yelling at the person and then yelling at the band when like he, I love that joke of like, um, He recognizes what a huge fuck-up this is. But when the band confronts him on it later on, he's like, you drew 18 inches. He gets gets defensive in a way
0: that he knows he can get away with because the band is so stupid. Or that he knows that he can get away with it because he is – he's driving the bus. So like, well not literally driving the bus, I guess. Um he's he's uh, uh piloting the band's current tour. So like, he knows at the end of the day like he's in charge and that he has some sort of uh power or levity over them. And uh he, it's 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 fairly it's fairly incredible when you get to see him flip a switch in his head and he's like, "Oh, I knew this is going to be a fuck up." I allowed them to walk into this fuck up head first on stage. They are calling me out for this fuck up that I, you know, I said i take care of it in that diner. Um, <laughs> and now is my moment to defend myself and have a, a big blow up about all I do for you people. Uh, but in reality, he's probably just looking for an excuse to get out the fucking door. I'm not saying he like masterminded the Stonehenge thing to like get out the door, but like he, he's using this as an excuse to be like, you know what? If this is what the blow up is about, fine.
1: Like if this is where things end, fine. <laughs> I, I just, uh, it also just feels very true to life. The amount of people that like, you're like, you must know that you fucked up. And then when you confront them on it, they're like immediately defensive and reactionary towards you even suggesting that they had something to do with it. Uh, yeah. I mean, it feels. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's children's shit, right? Yeah, uh, it feels very, very, very uh, real to life, uh, Peter. I, I mean, I, I think we could probably just talk about quotes for the rest of the night, but it, that feels a little bit superfluous. Uh, do you have any other uh, things to note, or, or should we move to final thoughts?
0: Um, yeah, I want to talk about, um, just like this movie has such, yeah, like let's 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 talk about the thing you just said, which is, uh, we can just quote this movie at you. This is a the thing
1: people do yeah we haven't really even mentioned the goes to 11 scene which is
0: that is where i'm going okay uh, well. that's the most famous sequence in the movie it's i uh, imdb's page for this they made a custom version of the page that allows you to rate the movie to 11 um which presumably required some programming Uh, that scene to me is not funny for the visual gag that it goes to 11. Like, oh yeah, they're a rock band and they, they wanted to, you know, seem hard, but you know, this doesn't make any fucking sense. Um, (laughs) it's that it's funny because the director who is supposed to be sort of, um, okay. So the director's goal is to be there and to sort of be a fly on the wall. And if he can reveal more by poking and prodding, great um and then to uh to christopher guest's character uh who's showing off his guitar collection uh which by the way i think the guitar that he can't look at or touch is way fucking funnier than the 11 as as mm-hmm. just a gag just yeah. <laughs> like the idea is like you don't actually don't even point at it <laughs>
1: like that's such uh, you a ma- fun- the amount i say like it, in one of those things where like what where did i get this thing that i sometimes say in my real life the that don't even look at it. Don't even make eye contact with it. Is is definitely something that I say about like silly things. um That hundred percent comes from. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. and the joke
0: is funny not because of the visual gag of the eleven. It's funny because is because Christopher Guest's character runs into a logical wall that the director should not be fucking pressing him on. <laughs> he's not. He's not a. He's not like a journalist or an interviewer who's like, we need to hold you to task for this. He's just like. Yeah, man, like I can't hold myself. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, <laughs> that is why it's funny, because this like logical wrestling match <laughs> is is just like so good. And it and it reminds me very much of the, the two left feet thing in Best in Show, where it's it's not funny that he has two left shoes. Yeah, it's a fun it, like it's it's sorry, it's sort of funny. The joke is not is not necessarily that the joke is how him and and Cookie talk about the two left feet. Uh, and he was like, "I used to be a bit of a Casanova myself." <laughs> like that. Like that <laughs> we'll talk about that when we get to Best in show. But like, the joke is not that he had two left feet. It's that he thinks that he's like rebounded in his in, yeah. from his from this nerdy grave so much that he's like ready to. He's like he's like yeah like well now I'm a, I'm a bit of a smooth talker and like the little bit of pathos in there that like he's either lying to himself lying to the audience or um he genuinely believes that he's like a cool guy now yeah and the beauty that cookie still loves him through that scene like that's 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 the, the Christopher Guest charm that like Yes, it's a visual gag, but the visual gag is linking straight back to character stuff. Very funny character stuff, which is that Christopher Guest's character does not fucking understand that, like, well, yeah, it goes to 10, which is the top. But, (laughs) (laughs) but it goes, it goes, this one goes to 11.
1: Yeah, it is, um, it is a joke that is almost impossible to explain like it's, it's it's something that you either just understand why it's funny it reminds me again not to go back to Ebert. Uh, I don't remember if we've ever talked about the show but one of the things that like did you I, how how obsessively did you read Ebert's website as a when it was when it was pretty regularly updated like in the early 2000s
0: um I read some of like the Scout Tafoya in that era in the late 2000s but not 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 the so Ebert website now.
1: So well, I it used to be like a regular check for me the way the AV common and the dissolve and other websites would come. So bi-weekly on Sundays he would either do the movie answer man where writer you know people would email him questions and he would answer them, um, or he would do a new great movie essay that he did. So uh, Sundays were like uh, was one of those things like appointment website checking for me when it came to Eberts. Uh, ebert stuff because i i thought his answer stuff was always great and uh obviously his great movie essays usually added something to my list or made me think about some movie that i already loved uh differently so there's a movie called heist which is written by david mamet stars danny devino and gene Hagman. it's actually an okay movie oh but I've, he seen, a, I, I've seen this like 20 years ago but i've seen this. yeah it came out like so he th- he he gave it a really good review and noted how funny the the david mamet line delivered by danny uh, DeVito was that um, everybody wants money, that's why they call it money. Literally for years in that Answer Man column. And I don't know why. I think Ebert found it somewhat amusing about how long people would discover that and then write him about it. That he like would constantly publish those letters, usually at the end of the Answer Man, about um, people trying to understand why that line was funny. And Ebert would try his best to explain it. Sometimes he would Uh, he would, you know, make a joke out of it in the way that Ebert could. Like, you know, it's just a really funny joke. That's why they call it jokes or stuff like that. But it went on for years, Peter. And it it really is one of those lines that always rang funny to me, but in the same way that, that Ebert, a master of written prose, could never explain to anyone that didn't already get it why it was so funny. That's always what the Spinal Tap line, like the, well, this goes to 11, is just not quite understanding that you, that there's nothing, like, that you can just make it, like, you could make it louder, uh, the but, ten louder. But, but
0: yeah, like, you can get into, like, well, um, you could, you can get scientific and be like, this one reaches this number of decibels or whatever, but, like, that- you just put a different number on but he he wouldn't I- not understand I, what that means. you would just be like, well, normal ones go to ten, this one goes to a, like, he wouldn't under, like, you could explain the joke to the character and they yeah. would still be like, you don't you're not understanding
1: (laughs) but i I also have found that like trying to describe why that's so funny feels like in the same way that describing why everyone wants money that's why they call it money is so difficult there is something that is both inherently true about understanding this one goes higher but is hard to explain as a joke beyond that like it's, it's either it's either the funniest thing in the world to you or it's impossible to explain and 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 the reason that that this particular one has resonated through the decades is that it has res- like that that concept of just putting a higher number on something and calling it like better to our core, I think, speaks to a lot of people.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, Pierre, what other uh, what other final thoughts? I think we've I think we've. Uh, covered this hollowed ground of Stonehenge well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah. I think I can probably move to to final thoughts. I really like what you said earlier and that's like it, it, it's um it, it's sometimes really hard to explain why a, a comedy is why a comedy is effective or why a comedy particularly works. and it's something that like you can either accept <clears throat> as a as a as a small defeat. As a reviewer, I don't know if you call if you'd call us reviewers. I don't know what you'd call us um, goons. time wasters. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, partners for exercise <laughs> bikes and doing
1: dishes. Um,
0: but my uh, favorite
1: podcast I listen to while I'm falling asleep. Uh, so maybe we're sleep inducers. <laughs> In which case,
2: wake up! Wake
1: up! We have final thoughts. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um but uh that sort of you can either accept it as like a small miracle that like even roger ebert couldn't explain the majesty of certain movies like this and you know try and try and uh talk your way around it or find what what actually can be explained what pieces of of, of this can be explained or at least explain the core pieces that make up the majesty the thing that is uh, more than the sum of its parts um, but yeah, at the end of the day, like people know if they think Spital Tap is funny or not. What, what yeah. they probably came here to do is like reflect on, uh, on the perspectives that, that it got them there. But, um, the, the movie itself speaks to me in like a sort of way, largely because the same way Popstar spoke to me, um, when we reviewed it, uh, last musical May, which is that these guys are kind of like sweet, a little bit sad idiots, um, and sometimes you see that the, like the, 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 um, the expression of that in their songs like Big Bottom is a is a fucking hilarious song. But that's like a on its surface, just like dumb. Let's have fun song. Queen wrote some songs like that. Kiss wrote nothing but songs like that. Um, and then uh, 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 but also songs that are dumb, but in ways that like they have the, clearly no idea, like Stonehenge. It's like its grasp of history is at best shaky. Um, and this sort of uh, segwaying into this prog rock idea of what druid culture is and them trying to play like uh, historians for a minute is also very revealing of like metal bands and prog rock bands who are like, let me tell you about human history as we take a psychedelic journey through through your mind. And like there were so many bands like that in the late 70s. Yeah. Um. And, like, that that song is dumb in a particular special way. And and, and then, like, uh, there's even, like, another iteration of how stupid they are, which is, the, like, uh, my favorite one, which is um, Christopher Guest is playing this gorgeous piano song. And it's it's really beautiful. And then uh, Rob Reiner goes up to him. and He's like, uh, so what do you call that piece? And he goes, lick my love pump. Yeah, (laughs) like he wrote this majesty and he's like yeah i mean it's just like a little riff i'm working on for a a song about (laughs) you blowing me so (laughs) there you go and that's that's i think like um i i think like that's the basis for the movie like uh, uh, laughing at the dummies is like a fun a fun uh uh, way to start one of these movies. But by the end, I'm genuinely like, yeah, I, I hope they transition to... Like, what if they became an 80s synth band? They've already been a British Invasion <laughs> band, a psychedelic rock band. They've been a um, a prog rock band. They've been a, a glam or hair metal band. Like, well, what, you, what you got next? Um, you know, they, I don't think their drummer is going to survive to the next bi- iteration of the band, but... Um, at least at least those two will.
1: <laughs> what's what's funny is that actually like the song that still makes me laugh the most, like yeah, Sex Farm and uh is is funny and Big Bottom's funny and um and I, I actually think tonight I'm gonna rock you is like the, the probably the best actual song song. But there's something about give me some money that makes me laugh so fucking much every time. The build up um, to
0: it is pretty good because you think it's going to be a love song and then it's just like obviously a British Invasion cash in song. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I also just there's something so like I'm going to read the first four lines, which may be again exactly like trying to explain something that's so funny. But it's it's actually one of those things I I um I think about anytime I tell someone, you know what I mean? And then I always like in the back of my head I don't say it all out. I'm always like, or maybe you don't. <laughs> you <know? laughs> like it just the just the opening of like, stop wasting my time. You know what I want. You know what I need. Or maybe you don't. <laughs> like I, something about that is so goddamn funny to me um, that I've I've like literally somehow the phrase you know what I mean or you know what I want or something like that like. Not not intended as weirdly sexual spinal tap like, but just in everyday conversation, you know what I mean. Like it has reshaped the way I think of asking someone that, just because it's so funny to write like intentional lyrics that are about you know what I want, you know what I need, or you know maybe you don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well then maybe just cut all that. Uh, come <laughs> right out and say. <laughs> Give me some money. That's good shit. Like, that part's funny and very, like, again, you know, uh, money, that's what I want stuff. But I, I do think, though, that first, that first little block is so goddamn funny. Oh, I love uh, it. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I do think, like, for my final thoughts, Peter, you know, one of, one of the genres that we've been it, – it feels weird calling it a genre just because it is, like, one of the – like, you know, there's Greek comedies and tragedies. Um, but I think we have been a little bit reticent to do straight comedies on our show just because, you know, that, that thing of, like, I don't want to just quote lines. And probably every time that we do a comedy or just a – you know, we, we end up talking about that, I do think that, you know – Covering the guest movies or some of the other stuff we've done is a really fun way to talk about it because these are movies that a I really enjoy rewatching. I would imagine most people listening to this, if they're not intimately familiar, they've seen it and it's something that could be fun for them to revisit as well, especially post our spookiest season. But also, like I do think that Christopher Guest movies, uh, which is you know kind of the the precursor in this movie have a sense of character dynamics that and and characterization as we've talked about that make them more interesting to talk about like when we start getting into waiting for guffman yes fred willard parker posey they're all very funny in that movie but they also are kind of getting at something that idea of feeling like you've Decided to like, you know, spend your life at this small town where no one notices you and you are, you know, you're working this repeatable job or like best in show where like your life revolves around this extremely esoteric thing that just matters the entire world to you. And it's like a a entry into like being obsessed with a subculture or like a mighty wind, like, you know, mighty wind uh, does go over some of the same notes as spinal tap. But as a, as a as a as opposed to a band that's been left behind, uh, a genre and a fandom that's been left behind. And so, yeah, I, I think like I, I I think this was a really fun episode. I'm really excited to continue to go there because I do think that uh, Christopher Guest's uh, movies and these movies specifically have a little more meaty stuff to chew on than just uh, recognizing how funny they are. Which is why, even though I really really at some point want to do like a uh, uh, Abram Zucker, a month. I don't know if I have the right handle to how we talk about airplane or Naked Gun or stuff like that in the same way that I think these are a lot easier to talk about from a like critical con- uh, perspective.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you're. I think you're on it. And it's it's. Um, I think a lot of it comes back to the fact that um, he's trying to construct an actual dramatic narrative here, and the and the yeah. Zaz crew was like. You've already seen the movie Airport. I'm going to make a joke about the movie Airport. You know, like, it's it's sort of like the movie can't exist without its source. But over time, the source disappears and then it's just a bunch of great jokes. Yeah. Um, this, like, you I don't know that much about glam metal. I don't know that much about, uh, you know, what the 80s, the early 80s music scene was like. Um, but I seems bad. Yeah, but I do know enough about musicians in general and I do know enough about people in general that this touches like every part of my brain.
1: Yeah. I mean, your brother <clears throat> was in a band. <laughs> he famously.
0: was he was in he was in the band. Famously.
1: Two yeah, listeners um, of the show specifically. <laughs> famously. Famously, specifically to listeners of the show uh, Yeah, next week, not a surprise <clears throat> We're doing Waiting for Guffman The next one of these movies I am, I don't want to promise it And if we, I don't end up doing it, I'll just edit it out Because I think this is my edit uh, I'm going to try to watch the big picture too Not to derail the conversation that we need to talk about But I'm interested in forming his first directorial effort And what a critical success but a bomb that was um, Into why he ended up making Waiting for Guffman a couple years later yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. To talk well, with
1: it. that, uh this one doesn't go to 10. This one goes to bed. <laughs> Cuz everyone is listening to this. It's also midnight for them.
0: Good night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good night.
2: Stop wasting my
1: much for listening
0: to We Love to Watch
1: <laughs> mmm. <laughs> <laughs>